1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with John Christopoulos, Assistant Professor of History at the University of British Columbia, to talk about his new book, Abortion and Early Modern Italy, out this year, 2021, with Harvard University Press. Hi, John. Hi, Yana. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's, a, it's an honor.
1: Ah, all right. Lovely. How are things in BC? How's British Columbia today?
0: Things are okay today. It's a, it's a beautiful day. Um, we're surrounded by mountains and ocean, uh, and it's just a lovely place to be. Um, I'm at the office. Uh, I can't complain.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, well, it sounds about right. Um, as, as summers go, you know, just like a nice summer day. It's yeah. beautiful. All right, so, hey, this is your first book, yeah? Yes, and it came out of your dissertation. Yes. um so I, I'm just really curious how you decided that you wanted to write about abortion. you're just like, huh? what can I do that'll be really controversial? Like, or, you know, hmm, I would like to be attacked regularly about my political beliefs. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, no, um, that, that's not how, how I started in this. Um, I, I wish I had a better story to tell about the origins of the dissertation and, and what turned into the book. But um, really how this happened was I was hired by a professor to be an RA on a project he was working on, Nick Terpstra. Um, and uh, he gave me some primary sources that he found in an archive. And um, they contained recipes, medical remedies. Uh-huh. Um, and so I looked into what what they these were for. And some of them, um, looking at early modern Italian uh, books of pharmacy, pharmacopoeias, antidotaries, uh, The primary sources said some of these could be used to um, encourage menstruation, so a a menstrual stimulator, but they also warned that these could trigger abortion. And this was a really interesting thing uh, for me. I thought, you know, Mm -hmm. trigger abortion, what, what, what are they talking about? How people in 16th century Italy were not having abortions? This is a modern thing. Um, and so, you know, we spoke about it and, and, you know, he was interested in that and he investigated and I investigated it together. And then eventually, uh, I learned that, well, in fact, this was a thing that was part of the medical landscape, uh, part of healthcare. And, and Nick uh, said to me, you know, you should write a dissertation on this. This is really interesting. And mm-hmm. I said, Yeah, definitely. It's much more interesting than what I thought I was going to write a a PhD thesis on, or at least for me at that moment it was. Um, And so I I launched into it. I I would like to say that it wasn't so much uh, politics, personal politics that led me down this path, but Mm -hmm. rather uh, an interest in 16th, 17th century Italy, social history, medical uh, history um, that uh, just opened up this area of research. And and I just ran with it. Of course, working on this stuff has uh, sharpened my uh, political leanings and my convictions. Sure. right surrounding on. Reproductive justice.
1: Yeah, of course. But so you, you were interested in the period first in the era, and then this came, yeah. you know, it's, it's great. It's a, it, it fills a hole in the historiography. Um, so, and I, I, you know, and of course, obviously there's a, the history of the medical, the gender studies kind of family planning issues, but it also really speaks to the reformations. As well, which I, I probably came like probably wasn't part of the part, the game you thought you were going to be playing, I'm guessing.
0: No, no, it, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. Originally, when I started, you know, researching this, it was in the medical in, you know, in the, I was following the medical angle. And I thought, you know, this is a medical issue. It's a health issue. It's a body issue. Uh, but then, of course, living in the 21st century, you know that abortion politics are, intimately tied and entangled Mm -hmm. to the law, but also to religion. Uh, And I thought, of course, this is obviously the case in the 16th century, and the Reformations, the Protestant and the Catholic um, have an important story to to, to play, or an important part to play in the story I was trying to tell. So yeah, um, looking into one of the chapters deals with uh, abortion in the church, um, and um, yeah, it was just a very, very important part of the story. What what I wanted to do was not take one angle onto this Mm -hmm. issue, but rather explore different Different angles uh, to show how complicated uh, abortion was in this time. So, religion, medicine, and the law were were really, uh, for me, three of them, the the three big uh, discourses that shaped the way people understood abortion. And uh, the Reformation has a big part to play in this.
1: Yeah, and you can see that just like looking through your uh, your bibliography. An enormous bibliography of primary sort, like published sources from the period. Um, so, I'd like you to tell our listeners what you what you were reading in the archive and libraries.
0: Yeah, so um, you know th- this uh, this, of course, changed as I was spending more and more time in in archives and libraries. The types of genres, types of sources that I would look to. Uh, but from the beginning, the way I was planning this was to try to find any 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 kind of document any documentary genre that had anything to say about abortion. Uh, So I cast my net really widely, uh, while of course, focusing on medical health, uh, religious, ecclesiastical and uh, legal um, criminal records. Uh, So in, um, in in Italian archives in Rome, in Bologna in Naples, I was looking for criminal trial records. Ecclesiastical and and criminal trial records, uh, cases that were uh, investigated uh, that tribunals investigate individuals for allegedly having abortions. Um, these, you know, as you know from from your work too, are are such really you know incredible mm-hmm. sources. Difficult to read, but really incredible sources because they contain verbatim or as close mm-hmm. to verbatim as possible the words of regular people talking about whatever it is that is being investigated, in my case, uh, abortion, sexuality. Uh, but also I, I wanted to, to use those. They were very important. I suspect we'll talk more about them later um, and put them into dialogue with prescriptive sources. So works of law, jurisprudence, um, legal codes, uh, works of uh, theology, moral theology, confessors' manuals, um, you know, the, 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 those different types of documents that give us different um, um entry points into this, uh, into this issue. But also in the introduction, I look at the language around abortion. So I, I, this was a, a, a new thing for me to look at dictionaries from the period and and, and some poetry to see uh, the different words uh, that people use to talk about abortion and bodily processes related to it um, and try to unpack uh, the, the meanings of those words. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a rich, rich array of uh, Italian words used to describe terminated pregnancy, and they all have slightly different connotations. So I thought that was an interesting uh, entry point into this as well.
1: It definitely is. And there's so much to learn from that kind of wordplay, right? Like, yeah. Where where they go? who is and who intended? Who's the intended audience of a word? Diff- like ju- it, it will affect what word you're choosing when yeah. you're writing.
0: It's but but also how people uh, use words um, that the dictionary will give you a very specific meaning for. Uh, but in regular conversation, people aren't thinking about the meaning, but uh, of the, the the literal meaning, but rather it's connotation. So one of the words that comes up a lot is sconchare. Uh, which the dictionary says waste to waste. But colloquially, Uh this is used uh, to describe a terminated pregnancy or, you know, a wasted pregnancy or a wasted fetus. Mm -hmm. So I just found that, you know, connotation that linkage between a terminated pregnancy with waste, Mm -hmm. very, very interesting.
1: Oh, that is fascinating. And you see people talking and they clearly know what they mean. They're using words that, and everybody in the room knows what that means, but it's not what, it's not what the dictionary says it means or it's no. not what, right. No, and of
0: course, and this is a challenge for somebody writing this history from the 21st century, right? I mm-hmm. looked at the dictionary to see what this word meant the first time I saw it. And and it didn't make sense to me why they would yeah. use this. So you try to enter uh, in, into their, um, into their mindset. Which mm-hmm. which is interesting and and difficult at the same time.
1: You know, it's it is it's incredibly difficult, and and it's why you know the, the, everything we do is open to some interpretation and some criticism. But it's really the fun part of it, you know, is to try to get at what they're actually thinking. You know, which reminds me of one more of my kind of pre book questions. Um, And I'm just wondering if you like, what was this like working on this as a man? And I do not mean to suggest, I do not think that as a cis man, you should be doing work about women. I don't, I don't think that at all, but I'm wondering if you got any pushback or if that affected the way you went about this reading these sources and doing this work.
0: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. It's a fair question. And it's a question that I've been asked um, a, a lot and, and, uh, one that um, I think I was not—I was not paying attention, and this is m- my fault. Early on, uh, doing this work, mm-hmm. I just engaged it as you know, an eager grad student doing historical work. <laughs> um, you know, I wasn't super concerned at the beginning with you know potentially the ethics around me doing this work, but rather trying to learn how to read archival documents. You know, <laughs> right, trying to yeah. learn how to navigate uh, archives and uh, um, find sources that I was looking for. That was the main concern. So. Um, The first, um, yeah, I'll I'll tell this story. I I gave a a conference paper where um, I was presenting, you know, early on uh, some of this material. And uh, I presented um, something graphic that I found in in, in the archives, something, you know, graphic uh, surrounding women's bodies and and violence on it. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, somebody in the audience uh, was was offended by this. uh, And the allegation was that, you know, you're being very insensitive here and you should be aware of who you are and how you're presenting this material. And to be honest, my initial reaction was, um, this is nonsense. You know, I'm a historian speaking to historians, but then upon further reflection, I thought this person has really, you know, taught me something very important, uh, that I do need to take this into consideration and think about the words I use and how I present this material and, you know, consider my own positionality. Uh, Mm -hmm. so, you know, that was a very very important um intervention this individual made um uh in in my thinking so uh, i've tried to do this with uh, as much sensitivity taking my experiences uh, um um and my the, the limitations thereof uh, into mm-hmm. consideration when i'm talking about issues surrounding pregnancy and its termination but also sexual violence uh, mm-hmm. so I, i've tried my best to be as sensitive uh, uh to that uh, and acknowledge you know my positionality but also not abandon um, you know, the principles of of being a historian and, and what it is that we do and how we do it. Um, I, I don't know how well I've succeeded in balancing those two things, but um, I, I, I did try my best.
1: You know, it's, it's really difficult. And I find a lot of positionality is just about kind of knowing yourself and knowing where you are and keeping that in the front or at least the back of your mind mm-hmm. while you're proceeding with your work, you know, but it, it, there's only so much you can do there as well. We are,
0: yeah, we, we are. So. But but also in, in my case, it was um, just regularly acknowledging my limitations mm-hmm. and uh, having a partner who n- always reminded me of that. <laughs> uh, go, go, yes. Going through this over the years, my 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 partner said, you know just remember, you don't have a uterus. You've never experienced this stuff. You've never experienced fe- feeling vulnerable, uh, in a variety of settings. Um, and just having her remind me of these things and, and read over my work and tell me where she thought that I was, uh, being a little too, um, I don't know, maybe a little insensitive or, or not thinking through, uh, these, perhaps these issues enough. Yeah.
1: Perhaps cavalier.
0: cavalier I mean, because
1: yeah. yeah, vulnerability, I mean, and, and, uh, I, I'm I'm not happy with the the idea of consent when we're talking about this anyway. I just, like there's something that just doesn't that I find that very clanking, but um you know the idea that that women have desiring sex has very little to do with the lived experience of most women when, you know, and whether or not they're going to have sex. Like that is and that's just an essential part of understanding life as a woman ever. And certainly when we're talking about the 16th and 17th centuries, women just do not have the control over their bodies that even modern women do. And that is something that just you you kind of take with you when you're thinking about this. Like what, what does this mean? What do vows mean? What is, you know, what does any of this mean? What's hearty consent when
0: you know, uh, um a difficult um a difficulty that that I had um, writing this, especially in the case studies chapters. Um, and I think anybody who works on on similar material does, is you know balancing what you just said, uh, mm-hmm. the you know the limitations on on women for bodily autonomy and consent uh, with um, the other side of it, which is turning them into hapless victims. Right. Um, yeah. And, you, you, you know, as historians, we are confined uh, to a certain extent to what's on the page and how those narratives are being constructed by the actors we're working on. But at the same time, you know, there is this struggle, victim or agent, uh, that, mm-hmm. you know, is, is universal and um, something that I certainly didn't solve. And I can't imagine uh, others have as well.
1: No, I don't think we will, um, and certainly not that question. Because yeah, you yeah. you're always making a choice between between seven crappy options. You know yes. what? What are you then? I like. Yeah. Well, you're also just a person because that's how all of us live, and we always have, really, right.
0: That's right.
1: Um, all right. So I want to talk about how you organize the book. So you have these three main body chapters in which you discuss the relationship between abortion uh, and women's bodies uh, to the church, three, the law. By which I mean kind of secular law. And then you also have these interludes that you tell a story, this little micro history. I loved those, obviously. But I wanted to ask you how you came to this. Like, what made you, how did you do this choice?
0: Yeah. So, what I found was um, when I was planning, when I was working on the dissertation and then planning out the book and trying to structure it, you know, it was, it was, it seemed obvious to me that. Um, the three big sections would be, you know, medicine, the body, law, um, and and religion, the church. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I worked on that for my dissertation, and I carried that structure through. Um, and what I was finding over the years after defending my dissertation, doing more research, was I just became m- not much more interested, but very... Um, um, uh, interested uh, the the stories that that come out of the criminal trials really caught me more mm-hmm. uh they 're much more interesting difficult but but much more interesting than reading you know dry latin moral theology or jurisprudence you know very important sources as well but um something about the, the trial records which you, you you know you've worked on on similar materials mm-hmm. they're just much more interesting uh, and so i I was finding more and more of them and and I was writing them up and uh, it was clear to me about you know halfway through that I am doing a bit of a disservice to some of these stories by just using anecdotes from them to illustrate larger points that are in the, the more analytical chapters. Mm -hmm. Um, and three of them really sort of rose to the surface as being very, very interesting. Uh, and I, I, thought, um, this could be a fun, but also methodologically an interesting way of, uh, moving between scales. So mm-hmm. focusing in on individuals, their family circumstances, where they live, their communities, and trying to tell a story of an abortion, you know, this, the, the abortion is central to it, but to try to put it into its, um, into its wider local and specific context. Uh, so I, I think of them as micro histories, trying to mm-hmm. tell a story to show how in the in previous, you know, the, the previous section on, you know, the one I, I talk about, um, Antino and Femia, which is, uh, the- uh, in between the the law, uh, the the mm-hmm. religion and the law chapter, um, you know, I've made a, an argument about abortion in the church, and use a variety of sources to ar- to to illuminate that argument. Uh, but here, I wanted to show how this actually looked on the ground for real individuals, uh, flesh and blood women and men, their families, uh, their communities, and how those discourses and laws and policies that I explore just before mattered or did not matter at all to how people lived their lives.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's what I'm trying to do with it.
1: Yeah, it works. It's, it's a really good idea. And I mean, because that's it, right? That's one of these questions is we're looking at you've got this prescriptive thing, but then how do people interact? We'll, we'll get there. I'm jumping ahead. Um, that's very cool. For the record, I, I tried to sell my advice around that for my dissertation. I was like, I want to tell these stories in between. And he was like, how about you just do the chapters and then we'll talk.
0: Well, I, I'll say I didn't do that for the dissertation. Um, <laughs> the dissertation has to do something very specific uh, and prove that you know what you're doing, and then right. I think um, you know you have a little more liberty as you try to turn it into a book.
1: Sure. Yeah. Guido was like not having that. I mean, it just like just sit down and write something. Yeah. Um, mm, all right. So I want to start uh, here. I want to read some of the first words of your book which I think are great. Uh, In the 16th and 17th century, in 16th and 17th century Italy, women procured abortions and had them forced upon them. Single and married women, both elite and non-elite, had abortions when they believed enduring pregnancy and childbirth might be harmful. Sometimes abortion was procured intentionally through medicines and physical traumas. Sometimes it was an accident caused by unintended interventions, labors, violence, illness, or health-related complications. In some circumstances, abortion was considered a sin and a crime, In others, it was not. Sometimes abortion resulted in scandal, prosecution, and punishment. Often it was responded to with sympathy and support. It was forgivable, acceptable, deemed necessary, and relatively unproblematic. More often than not, abortion was ignored, something individuals, communities, and authorities turned a blind eye to. Despite increasingly heated rhetoric and new legislation seeking to change its meanings and regulate its practice, abortion remained widely sought, accessible, and generally tolerated. In early modern Italy, Abortion was a fact of life. First of all, bravo. Well done. That's really nice. And I want to start here because I really want to alert our listeners, who are not early modern Italian historians largely, to the realities of the time, right? And a lot of what we think about Italian gender, sexuality, and family is just not true, right? But I also want to make sure our listeners understand just what kind of a colossal undertaking a book like this is where it's difficult to even define what abortion means, much less try to talk about what people think about it. And and this, this, this opening paragraph just really, I feel like it really admits to the, the difficulty, not impossibility, but difficulty of the task in general.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what to say to that, other than yes, uh, everything you've yeah. said, uh, uh, of course. I, I, I would like to say, though, the reason I, I agonized over the the first paragraph, as everybody does, right? As everybody mm-hmm. does, I didn't know how to start this off. Um, start up with an anecdote, or um, you know, that that is one way of 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 opening uh, up a book. Um, but I thought the most important thing I can say to somebody who only reads the first page of the book is that in 16th, and 17th century Italy, women had abortions. This was a normal thing. Uh, this isn't something that only the the very desperate did, uh, fearing you know death. Um, this mm-hmm. is something that women did for many many reasons, but also something that was forced onto them for many many reasons, and. We need to accept that abortion is something that has always happened uh, and that will always happen, even though there are institutions that try to circumscribe it and curtail it and regulate it and control it. Uh, So it was just really important for me to get down at the very beginning. This is a book about something that was very, very common. Uh, So, for again, and, and this was important for me because when I started this project, as I said, it never occurred to me that. You know women were having abortions as you know regularly as i think they were but also what abortion meant as you said you know it has a variety of meanings it doesn't only mean the word that um you know western english speakers when we hear abortion we think of procured abortion all the time because we Mm -hmm. have two words right miscarriage uh, and a variety of other ways that pregnancy is terminated uh, and they all have slightly different meanings but we do have these two words that are distinct uh, in early modern Italy, in, in, in contemporary Italian, aborto means both these things. So trying to tease out what what it means, what was important. Um, so the variety of meanings really mattered. But at, at the get-go, I just wanted to make clear this was something that was a regular feature of mm-hmm. early modern European, early modern everyone, but uh, in my case, early modern Italian life.
1: Yeah. And I think you do a good job of that. And I, I, that's it exactly, that this is this is there. And reminding uh, reminding our readers as well that the the furor around abortions since the 80s, 90s or something is not... We can't track that back. This is a completely different thing. That's right. Um, you know, and just like all of... Life happens to people, right? And so, yeah, yeah. you know, abortion is just one of those things. Um, but let's start by even trying to define it. So you mentioned like aborto is both miscarriage and abortion, like a procured abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, it, what... What so what like let's just talk about what what is included under that rubric of abortion mm-hmm. what can that involve
0: Yeah so so tr- trying to tease out specifically what people mean in a variety of um of uh, of contexts when they use a word like aborto or all the other uh, vernacular mm-hmm. words uh, slang words colloquial words they use was as as I said tricky um, I zeroed in on the differences between um, a procured abortion and uh, a spontaneous abortion, a, a natural abortion, a, a what what we would call miscarriage. Uh, mm-hmm. But finding the line that divides those two things was very very difficult in in uh, in in the process, right? So um, people will say she had an abortion, uh, and it's unclear from the documents or or the, whatever sources I'm using whether that means uh, she undertook um, um, certain certain endeavors or interventions, because she intentionally wanted to terminate her pregnancy, or whether this was something that happened accidentally, naturally, spontaneously. So intentionality really mattered here. And context was the only way to figure that out. But in many instances, in the sources, the context doesn't even matter. All they're all they're interested in in a certain, you know, an individual making the statement is that a pregnancy ended, and the intentions sometimes didn't really matter. Uh, and, that, and that was okay. Uh, but also, it was important uh, to to um, To break down procured abortion as well because when when i the first couple times i saw this or for a while and you know readers might think procured abortion early modern italy equals bad equals sin equals crime to be investigated but there's this whole other context of therapeutic abortion which was procured was an intentional intervention that was controversial, but more or less deemed okay in certain circumstances. So I had to tease out those different, uh, th- that meaning of abortion. And then there was abortions or, or terminated pregnancies, excuse me, uh, that ended on account of violence. Where do you fit that, that into, into the spectrum? Mm-hmm. Is it an intentional abortion that was directed towards, you know, terminating a pregnancy, killing a fetus, uh, um, you know, um, stopping a child from being born? Was it an accident? Was it uh, husbandly discipline? Uh, and and how how do you fit that into the spectrum of what aborto could mean uh, so so I wrestled with uh, with those different definitions quite a bit
1: well and let's also toss in um, infanticide and child infanticide yeah, as well
0: yeah 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 that, that, that's right it was um this was an interesting thing because um, infanticide has received more historical attention uh, than than abortion uh, and the reasons are you know it's a much graver issue mm-hmm. um, it's it's it, it's it's a graver issue. Um, It's been treated as as a graver issue, Uh, but it also has left, um, I think, uh, uh, more archival presence. Yeah, it's just so
1: much easier to find. It's so much easier to
0: find. Uh, And this has to do with the fact that aborto, abortion, uh, is an ambiguous thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's unclear what it is, and therefore... It's not going to have the same uh, uh, archival footprint that infanticide, which in the minds of individuals was a little clear, but it's slippery when abortion turns into infanticide. And and, and they're obviously deeply entangled. And that was something Mm -hmm. I wanted to explore in the book, too, while making it, you know, very uh, precisely on abortion rather than a book on infanticide. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I mean, books on infanticide have been written. And there's there's just this point. You know, where it's much easier and for our early modern, for the early modern audience to separate like a post or pre birth kind of termination, Mm -hmm. like like, that's probably not the best term, but
0: you know, um, and and if I could just say another thing uh, at the beginning of the process too, there's ambiguity, right? When, um, a a very, mm um, 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 copious or, or, uh, robust menstrual purgation, Mm -hmm ends up becoming an aborto, it ends up becoming an abortion is something ambiguous in the period too. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when, and this has to do with when, you know, fetal life starts and uh, when the soul is introduced and, and fetal development in general, but when menstruation is no longer menstruation, but rather is evidence of an abortion uh, is something very slippery in the period.
1: Sure. You know, like, yeah, what's a very heavy period, but you've, and you brought this up, so let's go down that road for sure. sure what is the there's this issue of animation when a fetus is alive or in sold or something can you can you generalize yeah. when that happens for us?
0: Yeah, so uh, this is a, an ancient theory stretching back to Aristotle and mm-hmm. um, um, the Aristotelian tradition, and Hippo- even before with Hippocrates. Uh, and the, the Greco-Roman uh, Arabic medical uh, authors are, are are operating and, and refining this uh, this this idea, and then Christian authors um, or the Church Fathers really you know make it a central feature of Christianity as well. The idea is that. Um, uh, um, Two individuals have sex, a woman gets pregnant, uh, the, the meeting of seeds creates something, uh, and that's something, according to this tradition, after 40 days, if it's going to be a human, uh, or in 40 days, uh, God will invest it with uh, an immortal soul. But forty days only if it's going to be a boy. If it's a boy, if it's a girl, if it's a girl fetus, uh, it's a, a female fetus. It's it's eighty days. It takes t- about twice as long. This has to do with um, with ancient um, humoral theory. It takes longer for female humans to solidify and to take you know proper shape uh, in order to be invested with the soul. So, so the understanding, which is codified in canon law and in theology and in uh, in secular law and in medical understandings, is that it takes. 40 days for a male fetus to receive the soul, 80 for a female fetus. And at that point, it has a soul, which means the soul has to go to heaven, It should be baptized and then go to heaven. Uh, And that means that uh, abortion after that period is a very grave mortal sin. But of course, everybody recognized there's no way to know when 40 days happens or when 80 days happens. So it creates you know this ambiguity in the process. If an individual has an abortion uh, and they don't know at what stage they're at, or to, to make it even more complicated, women don't know that they're pregnant after 40 days in the early modern period. You know, mm-hmm. they might miss uh, a period, but that was never indicative of pregnancy, right? It's no, that's and common. You now, yeah. it's just what happens. Uh, so if a woman believes that she's suffering from uh, menstrual retention, that she's having uh, trouble with um, regulating her her menstrual cycle, she might consume very ordinary purgative herb in order to, to get her system going and to, to, to have a period. Uh, and that period could end up being, you know, a, a terminated pregnancy. Um, and they sort of said, you know, that's unfortunate, it happens, it could be a mortal sin, but just go to a confessor and you'll be absolved. So this period of animation was very important mm-hmm. in theory, extremely difficult and impossible really to apply uh, uh, in, in reality. What mattered more for individuals who were making these rules and setting these laws and eventually investigating some of these cases was the level of formation. The closer to birth, the more baby-like a fetus looked, mm-hmm. um, that increased the gravity of, of, of abortion lawyers uh, and uh, uh, canonists and, and civil lawyers debated at what point in in you know in gestation can a fetus be treated as a baby and there really was no consensus they agreed later later in in pregnancy the likelier uh they set somewhere around eight months but this was contentious uh, an eight months developed fetus could potentially be treated as a baby but only if it you know uh, um, um, ex utero, if it was breathing and moving, even if it died thereafter, it could be considered, you know, as equivalent to a mm-hmm. born child. So the animation, ensolment uh, uh, moment was was deeply, deeply uh, important, uh, but also in practice, impossible to 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 implement.
1: Well, and purposefully impossible to implement, right? Because yeah. people who want or who are purposefully procuring abortions or have spontaneously have what we would call miscarried are going to be using they understand how slippery that notion is, right? So when yeah. you're trying to preve- present your best case, you're going to use that. So this is a purposefully, and, and there's so much utility to be to it being sketchy.
0: So much utility in it being <laughs> sketchy. So much so that um, um, one Pope uh, wants to get rid of it because he sees how it could be um, manipulated. Uh, but then another Pope said, no, no, we, we, we need this. There, there's no reason to get rid of it theologically and philosophically, but also you know, all hell will break loose if we get rid of this. So we we, we got to keep this.
1: Yeah, there is no way that the church can tell every woman who has a miscarriage that she is doomed to, you know, eternal damnation. That's right. And I know this from my work as well, you know, that people just people tell really good stories. People have they are very well aware of what they're doing. Um, And then the other point kind of right here. So like it's legal status. And let's note that this is really complex, right? So we'll talk about Sixtus's 1588 Uh, bull against those who procure counsel and consent in any way to abortion snappy title yes um right and so what what's what's he attempting to do here Then let's talk about that
0: yeah so uh this is a a pretty well-known uh papal statement it's a papal bull that six is the fifth issued in 1588 um anyone who has studied the history of catholicism and abortion looks to this as setting you know um uh, what will become a, a, our modern day Catholic or, or the Catholic Church's modern articulation of its policy on abortion. Uh, so it's a, it's a very, very important document. And um, it's been studied for centuries, really, uh, for what it, it tries to do, which is get rid of uh, the pre- and post-animation period mm-hmm. to try to get rid of that sort of flexibility around when is abortion actual murder and homicide uh, and mm-hmm. when is it, you know, something else, a clearing of a blockage and something that, you know, a confessor could deal with with a slap on the wrist. So Sixtus, it seems, in the bull and the way he's been read is trying to get rid of that that ambiguity uh, and get rid of the paradigm of animation in order to make abortion unequivocally homicide Uh, a terrible mortal sin, and he imposes on uh, individuals who procure counsel or assist individuals who have abortions automatic excommunication. So by doing this or helping somebody or not reporting somebody uh, who has an abortion, you're automatically excommunicated, Meaning, you know, you can't receive the sacraments and you're going to go to hell unless the excommunication is lifted. Uh, and the only way to do that, Sixtus said, was for the sinner to uh, uh, appeal to the Pope himself. So all the authority to absolve abortion, Sixtus claimed for, uh, for, for, the, pay, for, for the Pope. Um, what I found really interesting, though, in this bull, and, you know, it does say all of that, what I just said, mm-hmm. was who his targets were. Uh, in with, with the bull. And I tried to, you know, I read the historical literature, the, the historiography around, you know, trying to understand this bull, and it's been read just the way I told you, uh, but nobody really tried to put it into a historical context around Sixtus' reforms in general, or the Reformation period, um, as we were talking about earlier. Uh, and it, it became clear to me that, uh, of course, you know, this has to do with women and women's bodies, and, and that's there, but explicitly, time and time again, in this document, Sixtus refers to men and specifically to clergy. Uh, Multiple times in the bull, he sets out penalties for clerics who are procuring abortions for women they've impregnated or helping women have abortions by giving them medicines or forcing them to have abortions uh, violently sometimes. So I put this bull into another context out of uh, a general uh, Catholic Reformation disciplining of the clergy uh, and and sexual morality in general. So, So that's what Sixus is trying to do. He's trying to clean up clerical sexual misconducts, and at the same time, you know, create a new doctrine, new, new policies around what abortion means and how individuals should be punished for it.
1: But it's impossible. <laughs> right to, oh, it to was really,
0: absolutely impossible, and and, and he knew that. Um, yeah. Uh, when, uh, when, one of the just the really great uh, sources that I was able to work with was what happens after the bull is published and disseminated throughout Italy and throughout the Catholic world is that within a few years, uh, Sixtus himself, but but his his um, 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 different uh, congregations receive letters from bishops all over Italy, and probably, although I didn't find them, from other dioceses around the Catholic world, saying yeah, we can't really enforce what you're saying here. Uh, it's too complicated, too ambiguous, but also let's be real. I'm not going to excommunicate, you know, Giovanna over there and expose her to her whole community because, you know Alessandro raped her uh, and she had to have an abortion. and you know, there's no chance in hell that I'm gonna get her to pack her back <laughs> right. and send her to Rome to seek forgiveness from you. Uh, and surprisingly, you know, Sixus received many of these letters and he said, Yes, of course. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Just absolve Mm -hmm. her. So I started to, you know, wrestle with what this bull was trying to do. Mm -hmm. Set doctrine, of course, shape mentalities, try to shape behaviors, knowing that, um, you know, that probably wouldn't happen in his lifetime. But, you know, this is a long delay thing. Right. And we Mm -hmm. see that today uh, the Catholic Church's policy is very close to what six is articulated in 1588. Uh, and yeah, so. to a certain extent that that way of thinking, ca- the, the Catholic Church, and by Catholic Church, I say, you know, the centralized church, mm-hmm. that discourse around abortion seems to have become hegemonic.
1: You know, and this is, uh, you point out this very interesting thing about this period, and like abortion is a great place to see this, where um, the intent, the intent of the authorities is so often to just fix the problem, not punish so much as just Fix the problem. So yeah, Giovanna, let's. She's okay now, and Giovanna's going to get married, and everyone's fine, and we're certainly not. There's no way we're going to upset this whole town and everyone's families. And good, no, good God knows what you know. It's which is a very interesting thing about the just the incredible immense practicality of the uh, the ecclesial ecclesiastical hierarchy in this era.
0: Yeah, no, what's what's um, what's really uh, you know came to the fore time and time again when I was looking at how prescriptions, laws, um, are being implemented. It's, you know, these are statements of morals and values. Um, but on the ground, everybody from, you know, the Pope down to, you know, the, the, the village confessor is very practical and thinking about how we can suppress scandal, keep order, keep more or less everybody happy, but gently nudging them into a more, you know, orthodox, mm-hmm. more moral or what, more reformed way of thinking and behaving.
1: Yeah, and like, and so um, the position of the the official position of the Catholic Church really changes, even right? Like, there there's a pushback or like a walking back on this bull within a few. Decades, right?
0: Almost no, no. Almost immediately, it was it was within three years. So, as these letters okay, from yeah. bishops and and uh, and a variety of other ecclesiastical authorities come to Rome, um, it's clear that uh, there's a lot of opposition to this. Um, mm-hmm. So much so that even you know, as Sixtus was uh, drafting the bull and about to set it in motion, one of his top advisors said. I think you need to dial this back a little bit because mm-hmm. people aren't going to accept it. It's going to be ignored, and you're going to get pushback. And Sixtus pretty much said, "No, no, let's let's try this and see what happens." Uh, so after he dies, uh, his second successor Gregory the Fourteenth in 1591, so three, oh, three years yeah. later, okay. is getting more um, letters like what Sixtus was getting, um, and you know he sat with uh, the congregation of bishops and regulars who oversee sort of this type of discipline, and um, they pretty much agreed that. We don't know where this got this idea of getting rid of pre- and post-animation. It's it's a, it's something new. And novelty is not a very good thing. Uh, so he's he's upsetting, you know, centuries, millennia uh, of uh, philosophical, medical, and theological traditions here. Um, mm-hmm. So we don't know where, why he's getting rid of that. That really matters. But also practically on the ground, what Gregory says in his bowl, or, or the way that I'm interpreting his words, are people, regular individuals, women and men who are having abortions, helping others get a, uh, have abortions, aren't buying what Sixtus is trying to sell. And they're worried of uh, the ecclesiastical establishment that they're just going to accept their excommunication and go on living excommunicate,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Yeah. Uh, so that's not good for a centralizing church that wants to, you know, maintain excommunication as a really powerful tool for discipline. Uh, so Gregory says something like uh, knowing that, um, you know, we should be protecting and forgiving rather than harshly disciplining. We're going to dial back on Sixth's abortion bull. He doesn't call it a revocation, calls it a modification, because of course you can't, you mm-hmm. know, go against what your predecessor said, because it, you know, diminishes the the position of the papacy in general. Uh, so he, he dials it back and returns to the status quo. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um- Right. I mean, because in 1591, 1588 to 1591, you can't be trying, you can't be excommunicating no, everyone. Who, no. that's, this is no time for that. And then the church is really working to kind of pull people in as they sure, as they kind of discipline the body of the church.
0: But also there's, um, there's this fear that, you know, um, you know, the, the Protestantism is uh, a major thing that they're trying to combat. And if more and mm-hmm. more people are saying, you know, excommunication, the Pope for something that I felt I, I don't think is as bad as he says, you know, that might that might, that might cause problems. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. That encourages people to start thinking about what else the Pope might yeah, not exactly. be able exactly. to say. Um, so let's, uh, we could, oh God, I could talk to you forever about this. Uh, but let's try not to do that. So talk to me about, uh, the law. What's the position of the law?
0: Yeah. So and about, like,
1: what do you mean by the law?
0: Yeah. Th- this was, um, in many ways, one of the most difficult chapters, uh, of the book, because mm-hmm. when, when I started researching this, I approached it with, okay, I got to find you know what the law was, uh, not in Italy. Of course, Italy didn't exist, but what the law on abortion was in Florence and Naples and Rome and Milan and Venice and so on and so forth. And then I realized that there is no one place to look for what the law is. The law is so composite and, and plural, and there's different sources for it, and they're overlapping and entangled so, just thinking about what the law meant in early modern Italy, uh, it took me a lot of work to try to tease out these various strands. Uh, so, what, what I tried to do there was look at um, codified law, uh, books of statute law, uh, big often big Latin tomes that said you know very simple things like if you kill someone, you will be tried for homicide, and capital punishment is possible. Uh, to much more articulated uh, versions of, of of that and broken down. Uh, and what I found uh, looking at as many statutes as I could possibly find for North, South, uh, and Sicily was that most places in Italy did not have a statute on abortion. Many did, uh, but, but most didn't. And I thought, huh, that's weird. Um, why would this be the case? Is it because, you know, in a place like, um, oh, I can't even think, but... Um, I- so I don't think I found one uh, for for Venice. And of course, that can't mean that in Venice abortion was not uh, a crime or something that, you know uh, authorities wanted uh, punished., uh, but rather, they just didn't think to include it in their statutes uh, for various reasons. Part of it being statute law, codified statute law was a very simple, legal genre. And everybody knew that, um, to get at, you know, actual laws on the ground that were going to be enforced, you had to look at other, um, uh, other sources of law. So for instance, a prince magistrates, uh, issued very regularly, these ordinances, these statements, um, and, and that would be enforced, but that was also subject to change. So I, I looked at codified law, uh, statutes, ordinances, and they were few and far between. Uh, and this made me realize that for most, um, 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 princes, heads of state, Mm -hmm. governments, uh, abortion was not something super important that they wanted to craft an abortion law and implement rigorously. Uh, So that was interesting in and of itself, probably because I I, I go on in the chapter to say why this might be very difficult to investigate, but also the issues that we've been talking about, scandal, uh, the flexibility around when is is abortion allowed, when it's not, how do you go about investigating it, what crime is it actually, uh, these were all difficult uh, uh, things to investigate and to think about. So I looked at jurisprudence, uh, big, thick Latin books by famous lawyers uh, who, who turned academic and, and wrote uh, these big books on penology. Um, and they had quite a bit to say about abortion also. Um, So, yeah, so I I was looking at that to see how authorities and elites spoke about abortion being a crime. Uh, And in there, there was uh, ambiguity as well. So some of the most famous jurists of the time, Prospero Farinacci, for instance, he's unclear over what kind of a crime it is and how it ought to be investigated and how it should be punished. One thing that was clear, though, was that almost every jurist I looked at uh, framed abortion as a woman's crime. Uh, mm-hmm. So they just assumed that this was something that women did to hide their their sins. And then they went on talking about, you know, the fetus and post and preanimation and what the penalties for it might be and how those mm-hmm. penalties when and how those penalties ought to be mitigated for a variety of reasons. Uh, so that was one side of it. And the other side was I, I just knew I, I had to uh, look at criminal trial records to see what abortion actually meant uh, mm-hmm. when criminal tribunals were investigating and how they spoke about it. So trial records are another very important source for reconstructing uh, the law around abortion. So these three different layers, statutes and, uh, and um, you know ordinances, jurisprudence, which is commentary and interpretation, and criminal trial records are, are these three major sources for discovering what the law on abortion was. And as you can imagine, they often don't agree. They don't mm-hmm. paint a, a consistent picture. Um, but rather, I tried to make them talk to each other as much as possible.
1: And then, and on some level, you've got this incredible—you've me- got these conflicting situation with law codes and this this kind of a bit of a mess, right? Hmm. And then, of course, the governed really has to agree with how the governing is happening because abortion is no—no no one's. How do you even learn about abortion, right? Like this is abortion's a crime or a sin or a what have you that is very personal and doesn't happen in a public space all that often.
0: No, that, that's right. And in fact, um, especially after Sixus issues the bull, what I thought I was going to find working in the criminal um, uh, mm-hmm. archives, the, the criminal tr- uh, tribunal in Rome's archives, was you know a bunch of cases that come to the attention of the authorities and they investigate them. And I didn't find you know, any within those you know, years. Uh, so working with um, criminal records in Bologna and in Rome, and then ecclesiastical records as well, trial records, uh, what became immediately clear was abortion was only brought to the attention of tribunals when somebody had a vested interest in mm-hmm. punishing an individual uh, for reasons that were related to the abortion, but that it could also be completely you know, separate from them. Uh, so it was often individual dramas uh, family dramas communal dramas personal vendettas that brought a case of abortion to the attention of the authorities who went on to investigate it
1: oh yeah and then so that's this whole other can of worms right so what like can you make some generalizations for us as we like close like wrap this conversation up can you make beyond beyond the thing that we said at, at the very beginning beyond the statement from that abortion happens. It is a part of life. Can any other kind of broad generalizations you want to close here? Yeah. So
0: I'll I'll be careful here because I I generally try to shy away from very broad generalizations, Mm -hmm. especially around a topic like this. Um, Mm -hmm. What we see in the period that I'm interested in is uh, at one level, uh, the level of authorities, the level of the church and the state um, and end of the medical establishment, the level of institutions, uh, um, more interest in regulating abortion, more interest in trying to regulate sexuality, more interest in um, driven by the church, but trying to clean up morality and abortion is part of that. We see in the 16th, and 17th century and into the 18th and 19th, a hardening position mm-hmm. happening, probably throughout Europe. But, you know, my case study here is Italy. Um, and the Catholic Church is is sort of at the forefront of this. Uh, and uh, this hard this hardening is going to be crystallized in the 19th and 20th century and give rise to the current Catholic articulation or Catholic, uh, the official Catholic understanding of what abortion might mean. Uh, and states, in this case, you know, later a unified Italian state, but um, in the period I'm interested in, a variety of states um, are coming in line with this at the level of discourse, at the level of prescription. So things are tightening up. Uh, the church is becoming more interested in disciplining abortion with the hope of eventually getting rid of it. But it's something so ambiguous, something so complicated, uh, but also something that everybody acknowledges is needed. Uh, one thing we, we didn't talk about uh, here, you know, we it, it came in and out was um, abortion isn't only a woman's issue. It's something that men drive, right? It's Something that men <laughs> need is something that men benefit from all men all men who are involved Mm -hmm. in any sexual relationship who have daughters who have a son who impregnated another woman have a vested interest Mm -hmm. in 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 many cases terminating pregnancy Mm -hmm. Uh, so when men including elites including priests um have a need for abortion it is something that is allowed to happen. Uh, so yeah. so the, the the gender politics are, are really important here. And I try to bring that uh, to, to the fore as well. Uh, but everybody uh, understands in this period, this is a very unfair world. And it's very unfair for women. Uh, and abortion is something that doesn't, you know, make things fair, but that certainly can help um, balance some injustice that a woman yeah. may have suffered. Uh, and, and you know, I go into detail uh, in the mm-hmm. book about various injustices and violences.
1: And, and there are, and there's also just, as you note, poverty, war, just people, you know, when contraception is not that reliable, sometimes that we're not talking about, sometimes this comes up in not tragic
0: situations other than just just the regular, the regular grind of life, poverty, you said, uh, war, plague. Dislocation, um, you know, family family mm-hmm. dislocation. Uh, men migrating for work, leaving women uh, at home. Women moving around. People get pregnant for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. uh, and often there's a, a very practical need to 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 end it. Yeah, yeah. and everybody w- was aware of that. And I think um, we make a mistake by assuming that the past was a lot simpler. Yeah. That that many of the 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 very practical material things that affect our decisions uh m- were not relevant to the past when in fact uh, obviously that's not the case
1: no uh, yeah absolutely right and if there's just one thing i would i would love for everyone to understand like my goal just as an historian just the the past is not a simpler it's yeah. not a nicer it's the, it's not it's not just a fundamentally different you know humans are still humans yeah. in that past that's right we're we're very different i'm not saying that nothing's different but it's yeah. it's not a simpler there was no such thing as a simpler time uh, yeah so what's next? What are you working on now?
0: Yeah, um, I'm a little behind on this, but um, <laughs> uh, spinning off of this, when I was working in the, the criminal archives in Rome, I found um, that those archives are just extraordinary uh, oh my for, for the, the yeah. collection of trial documents they have. Uh, and, and working um, with some of these abortion trials, I saw how important um, medical forensic uh, knowledge was. Uh, um, was to, to how these criminal cases uh, proceeded. Uh, doctors, uh, uh, surgeons, apothecaries, midwives were often brought in to examine bodies uh, and to later testify. Uh, so, what, what I'm working on now is um, looking at the development of uh, what I'm what you know is anachronistically mm-hmm. called forensic medicine in yeah, uh, in yeah. early 17th century Rome. Uh, so looking at these criminal trial records, cases of bodily crime, to, to, to see how uh, the corpus delicti is, is constructed in these cases uh, through dialogue, through conversation between medical practitioners, learned mm-hmm. medical practitioners to uh, uh, lower status medical practitioners, but also regular people. So what comes out in this book a little bit, but what I hope to emphasize in the next book is that regular people, unlettered people, often illiterate people, women, um, were able to make pretty sophisticated for the time um, um, uh, arguments about mm-hmm. bodily crime they were able to to communicate you know at a rather su- different but but still sophisticated level uh, when they thought uh, a crime or an act of violence uh, resulted in um, you know impairment or or something mm-hmm. on their body, and they were able to make these uh, these cases for themselves. Sometimes these clashed and contrasted with what medical uh, quote unquote experts had to say. Uh, but the lawyer had to, the judge, excuse me, had to take both sides into account. So it's this moment where forensic medicine is developing, but it, is, it has not crystallized uh, the way that it will in the in the 18th and 19th century mm-hmm. to be strictly the domain of medical professionals. Regular people could um, um, you know deploy very sophisticated understanding of their bodies and of crime, uh, but also. So it'll be looking at, uh, the criminal tribunal as this really, you know, interesting nexus point where medical legal knowledge is being created. Mm-hmm. So we often think that, you know, medical legal knowledge will be created by physicians or medical professors and lawyers, uh, in, you know, learned institutions. But here we see that the daily workings of the tribunal, bringing different people into conversation and it really being uh, a site where knowledge is, is being produced.
1: Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Oh, God. You know, I've got a ton of those from murder cases. We should talk about that one. Yeah, people, yeah, you know, sure. like, what the, the, the immediate um, assessment of the body, like what the corpse looked like. You know? And there's a cut through as big as your thumb all the way to the bone. Really yeah. disturbing, actually, a lot of them. Yes. For, oh, yeah, the,
0: the level of detail can be graphic yeah. and shocking. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and the um, it is impressive the knowledge, the anatomical knowledge that people, just your average person, is tossing around is pretty great. No, that,
0: that, that's right. That's right. I, I found that uh, very surprising.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's going to be great. Oh, I can't wait to read it. All right. Also, somebody's got to do this your study here for the 18th century, kind of talk about, you know, looking at kind of the way the church kind of crystallizes and doubles down on on punishing uh, crime instead of trying to accommodate it and like calm things down so that has to happen i don't know if that's you
0: no that's that's not me i'm i'm strictly a 16th 17th century person
1: i hear you i don't want to do the the 18th century either certainly not the 19th yuck
0: um
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right this was great thank you so much for joining me uh and i'm looking forward to talking to you for the next book as well everyone listeners um Check this out. Abortion in Early Modern Italy by John Christopoulos. It is available out. It's out now. Yeah,
0: it's out. Yeah, yeah. Go, yeah. go immediately. Run, don't walk and get this book. All right. Thank you so much. Jana. It was uh it was a, a real pr- pleasure talking to you today. Excellent.
1: Bye bye.